I don't know if any of you have been here for the past oh hour and a half, two hours or so. We had a quick uh, technical error with Rose's live stream, and we switched over to my channel on the fly. So there was probably a little bit of confusion, but it looks like if there are 243 people here that everybody figured it out. So I hope you enjoyed seeing Rose and Kelsey and David Weiss. Anyway, welcome to the weekly Secrets of Saturn live stream. I'm glad you have decided to join us in room 237. And we have a bit of a full house this time. I'm joined, as always, by Wayne McCroy. Uh, also, Crow777 is with us, the great Baldini, and Sean McCann, who is really into dissecting the works of Stanley Kubrick, which I find very interesting. He's done some details that I have never even heard before, so I thought this would be a great conversation and something to talk about other than the beer bug. So, 
Before we get into it, let's do our weekly sponsor with Randy from Houston. Be right back. Did you know that 85% of your engine wear occurs at startup? Yes, that is correct. And this is where Lower the Friction comes in by putting a protective lubricating barrier on all moving parts. This now gives you full-time protection to make your engine last longer, run smoother, give you better performance, and improve fuel economy. People across the country are reporting some very exciting results. Go to LowerTheFriction.com, place your order, and enter in promo code SOS to get 5% off of your order. That's LowerTheFriction.com. All right. And if you do use the product, we would like to hear from you. I have been using it for several months now, and I'm getting on average three to five miles per gallon extra per fill up in my gas tank. So I think it's working. And you only need to do it once a year, by the way. Do it with an oil change, and then you're good for about a year. Anyway, let's get this really interesting party started. Uh, if anybody in the chat room wants to let me know how the sound is once we all get going, we've got five people here, so this is the most we've ever had at one time. We'll make sure everybody's got a good balance and I'll alter as necessary. But anyway, uh, Sean, let's bring you in. And where would we like to start with Mr. Stanley Kubrick? Hi there. Uh, greetings. Um, I don't know. I guess... Uh... Well, I mean, he's a master photographer, and there's a lot of elements that people don't generally pick up. Like, there's a lot of analysis of Kubrick movies, like pretty much every one of them. And people love it. He's, he's like a chess master, and he puts all these elements in front of us, right there on the board. And, you know, we see it all, but um, most of it goes subconscious, if it even gets in at all. You know, and I feel like he's just so much of an artist. He's doing it for his own sake, really. Um, but I mean, I do think that he's trying to convey uh, really big ideas that um, that you know, it's there's an esoteric level and an exoteric level. So I believe that uh, he has his main plot of all of his movies, and then there's a subplot or many subplots with many subtextual. Uh, notes, keynotes, and he uh, he has a, a way of um, cueing the viewer in. You know, he stresses certain words, or you know, he puts uh, the composition of of the frame uh, will be set up in such a way that it draws your eye, and you know, it uh, the way he uses color and uh, tonality, and um, basically, uh, I guess. All through like learning photography, the most important part of it I, f I found was critique, and that's where you could I mean you could lay out your work in front of all these other artists and they find things that you don't even know you put in, but your subconscious mind is like working overtime, you know and if you can find those elements and you and if you can uh, accentuate them and bring them fully to the to the front um, that that's a that's a way of making art that is, uh, it, it brings in synchronicity and it, it like, it brings in, uh, an element of, of, um, magic, I guess. Uh, let's start with this though. Is it true that Stanley Kubrick had a very high IQ and yeah. whatever he did, he really was able to master? Yeah. Yeah. He was, 
he was a master chess. He was master of photography when he was a teenager. Um, he worked for uh, Look Magazine, I think, when he was still a teenager. Uh, some of it, some of his still pictures from his childhood are immaculate. I mean, he's already he was already a master at that point. And then basically, filmmaking is just one picture after another. You know, there's many pictures all in a row. And yet he got a really, really poor grades uh, at Howard uh, Taft High School, where he attended school during World War II. He barely, barely got a D-plus average. Hmm. Well, you know what they sense. say, school's not for smart people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he was spending most of his time watching double features in the afternoon. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Learning yeah, his I trade mean, already, I, I guess. Every smart person that I've ever met never did any good in school. Well, know? no, it's because usually they're bored and they cannot stand the structure. I, I know a lot That's of people right. have fallen into that category um so all right let's get into it now obviously the the, the big one that uh, most folks know about is 2001 a space odyssey and well two of them really and his final film which was eyes wide shut which is the very telling one but where oh. do you think would be the most interesting place to start with it do you want to walk through all the films i know you've had a lot of uh work done on, on the portrait scene in different films and all that. Uh, there's the pedophilia link in Lolita. So uh, well, whatever you want, man, I'm, I'm good. I, I know a little bit about all of this stuff. So, well, it's good. Um, I guess like uh, all the, all the films have all kinds of stuff in them. Uh, there, there are some themes that go that kind of, they're in many films, you know, uh, mind control, uh, the loss of the will, is one of the big themes, and that's found in, um, you know, uh, uh, you've got uh, Full Metal well, Clockwork Orange, for sure. Clockwork Orange. Oh, it's even in uh, 2001 when, when uh, Hal loses his mind. Well, yeah, I never even thought of that. Well, also the monkeys, right? The monkeys are cool with everybody till they get taught to beat things to death right. with a bone and eat them. Yeah. So there's that kind of mind control. Actually, evolutionary mind control. Yeah, and it's it's like a, it was like a mind virus that they were given dominance and violence, you know. Um, that was like a lot of people see that movie 2001 as being like a triumph of humanity, but if you look at it from a different perspective, like really what brought them to that point is violence and domination, and in in a sense they have they uh, you know the star child is locked out of the garden of eden you know he's off in space just staring at the world like what happens you know what i mean like is he's like a prisoner away from the planet drawn out like uh cast out of the garden uh but anyway that's, is, that's all an allegory for transhumanism as well just uh putting that out there yeah there i mean there's many things that you can like relate to this because it's mainly like an alchemical structure that I mean, anything, like, you can hang a lot of things on it, you know? And the fact that he left it so subjective for the viewer to um, to interpret, uh, that really you allows for a lot. Uh, you know, it's kind of... differently. Go ahead. You know what's kind of crazy about all that is everybody, even people who didn't dig the movie, because it is pretentious. It's beautifully shot, but it's pretentious. And it's way <laughs> longer than it needs to be. Um, but that was, I guess, the point. Um, but then to turn around and build the Millennium Hotel at Ground Zero with exactly the same specs um, as that obelisk, um, the obelisk clearly being drawn as whatever it was, the overlord from the previous 
story it was lifted from or or how it was referred to in the original write-up um it's a hell of a thing uh how much has been done i mean the only thing missing from the early monkey scene there is maybe a monkey getting it on with a goat that's the only way they could have <laughs> went any further um with that scene but back I to mean, the box saga yeah they they exactly well <laughs> more than just the box saga i mean we're, every time you hear something goat you know something's going on you can't just have a pretty little goat to pet in your life that ain't the way it works <laughs> my apparently pet goat? Yeah. my pet goat yeah okay. <laughs> what do we call our we children <clears throat> yeah kids you gotta um, circumambulate the goat over the you know, on the I'm floor just, of the house. I'm just saying, what kind of a spell were we all <laughs> under to watch the Millennium Hotel go up? And by the way, the spelling was different. And by the way, the initial website fully stated that, yeah, this is from the obelisk in 2001. And then 9-11 happens in 2001. Uh, right. And I mean, it's all right in your face. Right. We, right. we must have taken a sleeping potion somewhere along the way. Right. They all knew that 2001 is the beginning of the new millennium. Like 2000 right. is the end of the last. Right. And, yep. you know, and September 11th supposedly is the year that is when Jesus was born, you know, and they do that ritual. First of, first of the year on the Coptic calendar. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I'll have to look more into that. But uh, I'm, uh, what I'm saying is that, that that is the opening of the new age and everything is different now. You know, and look at what we're doing, what we're dealing with This, you know, the, the tyrann tyrannical uh, lockdown that we're all under, you know, at this moment, trying not to think about it. But, you know, it's uh, the, the way that they deal with people is completely different than it was in the past. And it will I don't think it'll ever be the same. They have they've had so many generations of putting us through the play-doh machine and squeezing our little consciousnesses uh, uh, you know into what they want us to mold into there we're perfect slaves i mean people I, I i could go on and on i'm sorry uh, well, let's but, take a hey, step back on kubrick and talk about how he got into filmmaking and all that uh well um i guess i wasn't thinking about like doing a a biography of the guy um i was really focused on trying to get a couple messages from I was trying to trying to bubble up some of the some of the work uh, some of the messages out of the work I, I really um, you know I know some of his biography I've like learned a lot about him but I don't really focus on that I really look at his work and I you know that's that's where I learned most about the guy is because you're seeing his consciousness, you know, like it, your, your artwork is like an expression of your consciousness for others to view. And instead of looking at, you know, where I went to school and such, I, I mean, I'm sure that well, there's a lot, not so much that, that but I'm kind of curious what elite ties he may have had early on. Does, did he, is there anything that, that gives an indication of where he may have started being brought into these circles? Um, I, I think it's, because he started with Look Magazine, and if uh, if I remember correctly, Look Magazine, um, because he was already, he was recognized as a master photographer, and he was being hired. He was regularly working, like right after high school, and he didn't, you know, uh, he was just. I don't even know if he if he completed college. I'm gonna have to. I'm sorry. It's like a blank spot. For no, me. he didn't. I, he didn't get to go to college. Um... 
so this Baldini, uh, so he didn't get to go to college and he always kind of hated that. Um, he had very poor grades, of course, in high school. And then right, um, right after the war, uh, he graduated in 45. And so um, the time he would have gone to college, uh, everybody was returning from the war. And so they got in on GI Bill. Um, right. But uh, in terms of his, um, his introduction into those circles, I think um, you can go back to his family for that. He had um, an influential family um, prior to that. His father was a doctor uh, and he, they were already involved in some of those um, in some of those circles in the UK. So just right. to kind of fill in those blanks. Cool. Thank you so much. <laughs> so which film would you like to start breaking down first, Sean? Uh, well, I've, I've, put, I've put a lot of energy into Eyes Wide Shut and Lolita. Um, there, I mean, uh, basically the themes of mind control and uh, total human slavery is basically what Eyes Wide Shut is about. Um, the movie, the movie isn't about Bill Harford. Not the really. Movie is. He's just kind yeah, of there. It, it's almost like you're seeing it as, uh, like you're walking along beside him, but he's not really all that right. important. Right. He's like our window into the whole story. Right. And yeah. Like, That's the way I kind of saw it. Because right, he's kind of exactly. a drip of a guy, really. <laughs> Agreed. But that's why she chose him because of the. I mean, it the goes along with maybe. Well, uh, his blindness. You know what I mean. Uh, in the first scene, he's standing in a dark window, and he can't find his wallet. He's totally blind, and she knows where it is. She knows every. She directs all his movements. Um, you know when they're walking, to she says, "Roz, you know, has this and that. Roz is gonna do this." And then, like, five seconds later, he's like, what's the name of the babysitter? And she's like, Roz. You know, <laughs> she's totally stupid. And that's, you know, that's why. That, so, basically, she, the movie's about Alice. The movie's about all the other women like Alice. Alice is owned by the cult. And she is basically working a breeding program for the next generation of mind control slaves. So, uh, with trauma-based mind control, uh, disassociation is a trait that is passed on genetically, and they, their victims disassociate so regularly because of all the trauma. Um, they want this attribute, so they like to steal the children of their victims. Um, if you read about uh, Bryce Taylor... Or if you read about Kathy O'Brien, mm. uh, they both had children that were stolen by the cult. And um, that's basically how, how they work. You know, if you read Fritz Springmeier, um, and uh, if, you know, if, Kurth Barker also is another one. Kurth Barker. A lot of them are like firsthand, you know, there's no real way to corroborate their story because it's just a first-hand story you know with especially like with kathy and you know uh, but with uh fritz springmeyer he's talked to many of them and it all it's all the same system and he's broke broken down the system he's laid it out in many books uh he's researched the bloodlines he's researched the method of mind control that they use um there's a lot of knowledge fritz springmeyer is very uh, valuable to this topic. Um, so anyway, she she works for the cult. Um, she was 
one of the women at the ritual. And you can see that in the first scene where uh, right after the words eyes wide shut, there's a Nicole Kidman between two pillars and she drops her black dress just like the women do at the, at the ritual. It's programmed into her. That's how she does it. Ah, and good catch. Yeah. Good catch. Yeah. So like you see that and then later you see it again and then you relate subconsciously. And then if you look in that same, just that one shot, uh, she's got the, the door to her closet is a mirror and the door is open and mirrors are used in programming of altars uh, with the trauma-based mind control creates, fractures the psyche of the victim and it creates many altars that can each be programmed through different hypnosis techniques. Um, so when you see her looking into the mirror or uh, the mirror being open, she's Alice and that's the looking glass. So there's a significance there. Um, so that's, that's where she switches. And uh, Fritz will tell us, and uh, also um, Bryce Taylor writes in her book about spinning, and then like the, the victim will be spun and then shown a mirror, and then you, the kid has to look at themselves, and then they say, this is some other name, you know? And then they, they try to bring out this other um, you know, uh, uh, alter personality. And, um, you know, they have a set of, like Bryce Taylor's father used dolls to program her. And I'll talk about that later in the discussion, but there's like a, an, a case on the wall and they're all like on display, you know, mm -hmm. and each one has a name and all of those are programmed. Alters. And like when he comes into the room and he's going to do some torture, uh, he'll say a little limerick, you know, oh, this one's coming, this one's no longer on display, she's coming out to play, you know, and, uh, and that, those kind of, those elements are sewn in to Eyes Wide Shut, and um, I guess I could say now, nah, I mean, we're going to jump around, I guess, at the end of the movie, Helena, the daughter, uh, is showing her parents they're walking around the toy store and she shows her parents you know a doll that she wants and if you look behind her full frame like it, right there is a uh, Barbie doll but Barbie is dressed as Marilyn Monroe from the movie Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and if you know about that uh, you can the Diamonds are a girl's best friend is like the mantra they do in that movie. And like when she's singing that song, there's like she's like on a red carpet and she's dancing around with diamonds and all these gentlemen trying to like, you know, woo her and shit. And if you look at the others, there are other women everywhere, but they're part of the furniture. They're like in the lights and they're like part of the pillars and they're just like they're bound to it like like in the movie aliens when the people are like cocooned in the wall like that's how it is while she's singing and dancing all the dudes looking at her and all these other women are like in black bound up in the furniture and then i mean and that goes to i mean i it really jumps around but that relates to lolita 
in the opening scene where Quilty is begging to not be murdered by Humbert, and he says that he can he is a, he can get him people that he can use as furniture. <laughs> like, <laughs> wow, for real. It's I mean it's it's really specific, and Lolita relates to Eyes Wide Shut because of the elements of the uh, the rich elite, um, and he's a playwright. Uh, you know, uh, he works in Quilty. I'm talking about um, is a playwright who works uh, with you know Hollywood. He's got a dark occultist girlfriend, witch, you know, uh, and he's a pedophile. And when we first see him, he's wearing a toga, and he says he wants to play Roman ping pong. And it's all about how he's, you know, uh, the basically, we don't know why Humbert is there to shoot him. We think, okay, this guy's mad about something. We don't know. <laughs> but, you know, we see at the end, he's, like, running away from Humbert with the gun, and he climbs upstairs and then he get he climbs behind a painting, and then Quil- then Humbert shoots him through the painting, and that relates to Eyes Wide Shut, because if you look above the carpet, there's there there are people on the balcony, the the carpet in the ritual, there are people in robes on the balcony. You, you're made to look up. To notice the man in the tricorn hat with his, you know, the tricorn hat mask. And the guy nods down and, okay, Bill looks up, okay, he nods, you know. And then, so we acknowledge that there's people up on the balcony over this red carpet. And then later in Eyes Wide Shut, actually, and exactly and one hour later, when I'll talk about that later, um... The, uh, the, the red billiard table of uh, Ziegler's billiard room, all pool tables are cyan. Like, there is no red pool. That's very odd to have a red pool table. And the felt of the red carpet, it's even mentioned in Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, or, no, not Eyes Wide Shut. It's even mentioned in uh, Room 237, the documentary. Mm-hmm. I forget which person said this, but uh, maybe it was Bill Blakemore. But talks about how... Z- Ziggler is holding the cue, the cue ball, and he like knocks it on the on the red felt of the billiard table, the same way that Red Cloak in the ritual bangs the staff on the carpet. So that's like making a visual relation so that you I mean your subconscious mind is remembering the the carpet knock, the like double tap tap. Um and he does it a few times. Ziggler is like really doing this on purpose. Um, and that then you recognize, okay, so that red pool table is the red carpet of the ritual. Okay. And then if you look up from the pool table, actually exactly the moment when, uh, when Ziggler says, you don't want to know who these people are. If I told you who they were, you wouldn't sleep so good at night. <laughs> right after that, he walks away from the little bar, and it's like a f- the the scene is pulled back more, and you can see more of the room. And what's visible above the pool table, there's a bunch of portraits. And these portraits 
are the people at the ritual. Right. I mean, they're ancestors. But if you look up at the uh, the the portrait at the head of Ziegler's table, if you like pause and you look at that painting, it's a man holding a tricorn hat. I mean, that is the guy on the balcony in a tricorn hat mask. Like the guy wearing the mask is wearing the same mask that his ancestor did. The guy who's in the painting. Right. It's that's the what's his name? Is it Ziegler? Ziggler, yeah. Yeah, that's it's his uh, family's whatever symbol that they use. And it's obvious it's him with his wife uh, looking down at Bill when Bill is stumbling into the uh, the ritual. But we should probably go back and uh, talk about the uh, the party at first because I, I remember a lot of stuff oh, jumping out at me there. Yeah, please. So, okay, the party, when they arrive at the party, uh, the first thing that is said when they walk through the door and there's the star of Ishtar right there. Like the star of Ishtar is prominently displayed in Christmas lights yeah. all around this place. So indicating once they walk- right away what that party actually is. It's it's showing you right, right. there. Right. They're into Semiramis. They love Babylon. You know, they that's what it is. Uh so basically they so Bill and Alice walk in the door and the first thing that's said is Ziggler says, Alice, Bill, Alice, like that, because <laughs> she's the one that, that he wants to see. She's the one he has history with, you know, and Bill thinks, oh, yeah, I'm his doctor. Huh. That's why I... she even asks him, do you know why we're we are invited to these parties? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's because I do house calls like <laughs> bullshit. She and she's just checking to see if he's still stupid. You know what I mean? She's like, do you do you get it yet? You know, and he's like, no, yeah, I'm his ego. You know, is like, I'm so great. That's why. And she's like, OK, great. You know, and then she keeps dancing, you know. So anyway, uh, Xandor, or not Xander, but uh, uh, Ziggler rem- remarks about how beautiful she looks. And his wife is like, yeah, yeah. And basically his wife knows that Ziggler has fucked her many times. I'm, I'm sorry for the language. Uh uh, is that not allowed? I don't know. Eh. Um, okay, good. Well, I'll try not to, but I apologize for that one. I just so try anyway, to keep it clean, but it happens. I will do. I will do my best. So, um, Ziggler has had relations and has a past with Alice, and that is like obvious from the start, you know. And then uh, they, you know, they're they're doing their thing, and then he he recognizes his friend from college, uh, Nick Nightingale, and so they separate. And the moment that they separate, she switches to an to another personality. You can tell immediately. She, like, walks into the room, she grabs a drink and downs it, like, guzzles it. And then she grabs and she gets another drink, and then she's sitting at the bar with her face right above the glass, like she's on display. And uh, so, basically, she's got her face there, and she's there waiting, supposedly, for him, uh, for Bill, to get back to her at the bar. But she's doing, she's reverting to her old uh, pattern, her old programming, where she used to be a hooker for the cult, and she was a party favor, basically. And if you see the other, the two models that Bill is talking to, they are current 
party favors for the people at the party. Right. It's so obvious they, that they're directing him. They go up to him. Each one takes an arm and they start guiding him away while she gets right into the arms of the older European gentleman. Right. Because they want to play with Alice. Yep. They want to bring him away so they can have Alice. And so this is like, this is why they're invited, you know? So anyway, she's there at the bar doing her normal thing or her, that she used to do when she was a young woman. Uh, she's still young looking, whatever, but I'm just saying, like, when her older programming mm-hmm. and Endor Zavas, the Hungarian man, uh, discovers her at the bar. And then she, through her peripheral vision, sees that he's looking at her. And she puts her glass down. She takes it out from under her face. And she puts her glass down directly in front of him. And then she waits. And then he picks up the glass and drinks it completely. And that is triggering her personality to be stuck to him now. This is how to engage the party favor. This is like, you know, this is that's her on switch. And then he starts talking to her. And uh, if you see... Kubrick does a really beautiful thing with the light. Um, he's discussing, he's talking about Ovid and the art of love and uh, how, you know, in like the third book of, I mean, there's many, the third book is like, uh, um, is uh, directed towards women for women to read. And it's like how to, you know, experience, like all women should experience young and old lovers and like, Basically, it's, um, I don't know, we don't need to go down there, but uh, he's, he's this is his root route of flirting with her and uh, engaging her, um, her programming. And uh, you can see the way that, that it's framed. Uh, Xandor is like on the left side of the screen. She's on the right. And when he's speaking to her, there's a light from the, the Christmas lights behind his head line up with his mouth and it strings down to her ear and it like opens up at her ear and she's like holding her head kind of sideways and it's like you can see the, the light is like a magic spell being like put right in her ear and it's like visually you know portrayed that way uh, Kubrick is really amazing with his uh, you know composition wise right and the Xandor uh, comes across as extremely confident that this is no big deal to him. He wants this guy's wife. He's going to have her. That's that. Right. Right. Yeah, because that's all the other wives are, you know, because that's, that's how all those parties are. That party is like the prequel to the next party, which we see an hour later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the after you know party, I mean? as it were. <laughs> it's, yeah, that's the after party. And like... It, you know the same people are there, and uh, you know it's they the same women are there too. Like uh, Mandy is at the ritual, right? And she's also upstairs in the bathroom, servicing Ziggler. You know, and he's like putting his pants on as Bill goes in to help while she's on it having an overdose, and uh, she's like sprawled out naked on a red chair, and if you look up. Right next to her on the wall is a painting by Christiane Kubrick, Stanley's wife, 
uh, called Paula Six Months on Red. <laughs> and it's like a pregnant woman laid out, it's huge painting, uh, laid out naked on red. So it's like, you know, the, the woman and the rest of the bathroom has like blue tones. So it's really, it accentuates the red of the painting with uh, the naked woman, you know, it's it's like uh, it's related anyway. So well, let's uh, let's let's talk about how they divided the couple too. The fact that uh, Bill and and um, Alice come in, uh, the two, whatever you want to call them, the two women get Bill by right. the arms, lead him off before before the incident upstairs happens, and of course Xandor goes after Alice. So right. and if anybody's never seen this movie, it should probably just be a little bit clear. So the two main I'm characters sorry, are Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who at the time were a power couple in Hollywood. They were married, you know, that whole nonsense. They uh, did this movie together with Kubrick, which, of course, ended up being Kubrick's last film. So Nicole Kidman is playing Alice. Tom Cruise is playing Bill Hart- Hartford or Hartford. I forget exactly his name. He's a doctor. And they don't know any... Well, Bill, anyway, doesn't have any idea about what he's walking into and probably has walked in and out of his uh, his career, his whole career. And the, the storyline of the film is that he pokes his nose a little too far out of curiosity and sees things that, uh, well, most people do not. Right. So yeah. they, they get divided. them either. Like, he sees it. But he still doesn't recognize it. His eyes are wide shut. Right. Go now, ahead. the interesting thing I've, I've wondered about this film is, did something similar happen to Stanley Kubrick? And by the way, Baldini and Wayne, jump in if you have something to, to comment. Well, I, was just, I was just going to quickly point out, on the, when you mentioned the um, Cruz and Kidman at the time were a, a power couple in 1999 Hollywood. 1999 this was, yeah. Yeah, so um, Kubrick had uh, previously tried to get this film made, and he always wanted a married couple to play these roles. And, and he had yeah, several choices prior. did he have the rights to the book prior. for years? Like yeah, he did. Yes. He, he did, and he'd been wanting to make this for. It was he intended it to be his magnum opus, as far as I can tell, and uh, he had tried to get a few other couples uh, to do it at pri- periods previous to this, uh, and uh, finally, by the time he got it made, um, Cruz and uh, Kidman were the power couple, so he had them do it. But he, he had uh, always had a. In fact, even at once, he had uh, uh, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow uh, casted oh. for it, which would have been really weird. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, he also wanted to cast um, uh, Steve Martin as as Bill Harford. Yeah, Steve Martin, but but he did not have a, a famous wife at the time. Was that like so twenty years earlier? It was about fifteen years, I think, earlier. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I mean, he he loved the jerk so much, and basically that's what Bill Harford is. Bill Harford is the jerk, you kind know? of. <laughs> yeah, so blind, and so it was. I mean, really funny to to learn that, and. Um, yeah, he um, he had the rights. He like bought all the books, and he had the rights to this. Uh, he was gonna make it after two thousand one. He was gonna make it in like it in, in sixty nine or something. And, and yeah, seventy one. I think was seventy one was I think his first attempt. Yeah. Do we have any right. idea how accurate the the final nineteen ninety nine Eyes Wide Shut was to the original book? Because Kubrick is of course known for changing things uh, with a lot of reasons suspected why he does this. Well, I'm certain it wasn't the original cut because what he apparently what he showed uh, did not ever uh, see the light of day. That's what, what well, the original we hear, screen. Yeah. Yeah. 
I know Jay Widener said that there's very obvious fingerprints all through the movie that this is not a final edit, that there were little things that he as a filmmaker caught that like, yeah, this was a final cut that was done by a master director. These tiny little things that got left in would never have happened. So yeah. uh, I haven't watched no, it in a while. I'm curious so. about, about you guys take, uh, especially Sean, of whether um, uh, whether his uh, quote heart attack was legitimate or whether that was something else. Well, I believe that it, there was nefarious. I, I would I would agree with you. The timing is yeah. extremely suspicious, and especially the fact that it was um, the film was confiscated and immediately recut before it ever saw the light of day. So, anyway. well, what, yeah. what I've always I mean, wondered about that because I have suspected that is that Warner Brothers had to know that he was doing it. It's not like they didn't know. Right. He, he we just discussed how he had been trying to do it for. 10 sure, to 20 keep, years keep or in, so keep in mind he ever since um the apollo missions <clears throat> whether this is you know uh, related or not but certainly many of us think it was um he had uh, complete um creative control over every movie uh right. da- down to Supposedly, every bit yeah. and so i'm sh- and so i'm sure um if he insisted that he had the right to do that and creative control um they couldn't stop him uh, until again it was done okay you got to you got to make it your way and you got to screen it once and and now we'll take over that, that's the read I have on it. But. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and But I, I think that that, like, it was supposedly uh, like 20 minutes that was cut or whatever. I think 22 is, I think, the number I heard. About 22 minutes. Yeah, 22 minutes is what I heard. Well, I mean, I don't know, but I think that's a rumor because. Um, Some of this I got from Jay Widener, but I haven't watched any of this stuff in ages. So you'll have to forgive me if my memory is a little faulty. Well, I saw the Jay Widener work as well. And. Um, some of the thing, some of his reasons that he gives, like um, when Tom Cruise is asking, is like repeating Nicole Kidman's words to her during the bedroom fight. I think that that was in the script. I think, I mean, I don't know what could have been that they're like. Why would they be cutting this other stuff? And he's Kubrick made like hundreds of shots of every scene. He always did, yeah. yeah. Right, and they have so many to choose from. They wouldn't be using some scraps that you know what I mean. They've got hundreds to choose from. So, I believe that those lines were meant to be in the movie, and it wasn't like some oh just because. I think that Widener was trying to validate his own theory on that one. Possibly, Um, you know. So I I have no opinion about that. Okay, (laughs) well, uh, I respect the guy and all of it. Uh, but basically, my my theory is that it is the way that it. I mean, if they if they did cut anything, it would have had to have been from like the exact end of the movie or the very beginning, because the movie aligns with itself. It syncs with itself at one hour intervals. There's a um, beyond Widener, so just um, and I have to look for the sources, but I, I had um, previously read, uh, and this was very shortly after his death, um, that there was um, th- that the the parts that were cut were at the end, and it, it was basically the reveal and made everything make sense, uh, and that everyone who saw it gasped because he 
pretty was pretty pointed. In other words, um, he drew some very direct correlations to what was happening in Hollywood, and you, it was the the correlations were unmistakable, and it ruffled feathers, uh, and um, and that was just from people who were at the um, at the original the first premiere of it, the first screening. Uh, so it was not um, wider that I got that from, but um, I'd have to go back and look at the sources. But there were right. two or three people who had seen the original screening, hmm. um, and that um, they were shocked that he actually put some stuff in there because it was um, made such close correlations to people that were well known in Hollywood. Uh, was and, it Scientologists? And, uh, it was that that I know of. Not it was um, people from OTO, uh, oh. and that he was yeah. fairly much fairly exposing that. Uh, and it was one-to-one correlations with people who were living and, and who would uh, right. have, there was no way you could mistake who it was, and they felt like he was kind of um, outing them, uh, and so and there was uh, apparently even arguments outside the theater where uh, that there was like again nobody heard exact words but there were argue there was heated discussions happening, uh, and then uh, I think it was what, l- less than five days later he he was dead of a heart attack so um, there was a lot of speculation at the, at the time and I found that fairly interesting but yeah. but apparently there was a substantial portion um cut at the end that was sort of a reveal like um right. things were unmasked and people but but the unmasking actually unmasked real people um yeah. in, in a way where i think there was even um uh like plays on names right so um you would say like dalt wisney <laughs> or so, I mean, stuff like yeah. that. Right? I mean, it was it was so direct that it was just it was um, uh, such a thin covering uh, that people were shocked that he would do it, and and apparently he had some axe to grind. So anyway, I'll, I'll back out and let you continue. But well, these, these are some I, aspects that I I recall from from when this happened. Right, I was very right. intrigued at the time. So so Wayne, why don't you take a minute and talk about who the OTO is because you're not really saying too much on this one, and we want to give you a chance. Oh, I'm just kind of sitting back and taking in the information uh, because <laughs> I haven't really looked too deeply into Kubrick's works. Uh, just you know the the connections with the Apollo uh, moon landing and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. The OTO. This is the Order Templi Orientis, and uh, th- this uh, group is it's a secret society that's commonly uh, connected to this sex magic type of uh, a mentality uh, that goes on. Yeah, it's it's. It's really uh, some pretty twisted stuff when it comes down to it. And th- this is one of the uh, the major uh, purveyors of things like this within our world and in, in the real world. This stuff really goes on in the Hollywood circles and, and these types of circles. So this was, uh, I-, I think, Kubrick's attempt at uh, Revelation of the Method. But I think uh, it's it seems logical to conclude that it's very possible he may have put a little bit too much on film and he paid the ultimate price for it so uh it, it's it's one of those things that that could be debated it's but, speculation uh, but yeah but, it's like, speculation, again, it, but there was a it's lot a of little stuff too floating, coincidental yeah there was a lot of stuff floating around right after his death that's sort of been vacuumed up since then and, and it's difficult for me to find um but but i do recall it pretty pretty clearly at the time and it uh you know it, it got out there so anyway didn't want to didn't want to derail the thing but um but yeah, especially that he had been trying to get it made for years, and he had intended it as his magnum opus, um, right. his greatest work. So, and he went out with a bang. So, <laughs> so, so well, even if the film yeah. was a little chopped up, it's still extremely revealing. I mean, even if it's got a few little, uh, there's no doubt. Yeah. rough edges. As you, you know, I have to watch it again for, through the through the eyes of somebody who's now edited a film. So, 
I, I mean, I remember the storyline. I remember the ritual. I, you know, I could definitely talk about that. But are there things about it that uh, give it away as being incomplete? Uh, guess we'll have to find out. Now, here's a good question for you. Does anybody know who owns rights to Kubrick's films now? Oh, is his it, wife still alive? Isn't she? Is it? It's the it's the gentleman who got Alex Jones into Bohemian Grove. <laughs> really? Gee, there's a coincidence, it's, huh? Yeah, but let's that hear is more about that. that. <laughs> he's the guy that has all the all the uh, original work in a vault. Do you know I his guess. name? Uh, I'm gonna look it up quick if you don't, because I'm curious. Please now. look it up. The guy who brought Alex Jones into Bohemian Grove, he's like famous for that. And Mike somehow, Hansen? I, mm, yeah, that I, sounds right. Yeah, Something like that, yeah. Sounds similar. Um, but yeah, that's the guy. Uh, that I mean, I didn't think I was going to be talking about that. I would have had more information on that. I don't know. I was just maybe speculating it might be something like the Dalt Wisney Corporation or something, you know? Well, right. Warner Brothers well, was the one who released the last one. Somebody else. I mean, you know, he he's working for, like, he, I think, has possession, but I don't think he owns it. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know. I think Warner Brothers still owns them, but I think he's in charge of them. Uh, it's, I'm going to have to ask some people, because I, I know some, uh, some people that know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I, I apologize, I didn't have that with, with me for... That's uh, all right, okay. we're just, just, we're just having a conversation amongst friends. Right, right. So, uh, so when you mentioned the OTO, that relates back directly to the ritual, because what, I mean, what was the OTO doing, really? What were their workings? So they did sex magic, sure. So do you know about uh, moon child rituals? Do you guys know about yeah. that? Well, that's yeah. Rosemary's Iron Maiden. Maiden. Yeah. Right. Well, Rosemary's oh. Baby, the original. Yeah. 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 That's a literal... Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> exactly um, another little so bit of a revealing you're, film. You're, there. You're, you're, we're all hip to the tip, my brother. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like uh, with uh, with Polanski, he was using a literal embodied evil spirit. Like this thing had claws and actually inseminated her with a body. You know. So what? Yikes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you've, you've seen it, I'm sure. And, and by coincidence, it was Polanski's uh, wife, Sharon Tate, who was with the, the Manson supposed murder. So, again, mm, all the right. world's a stage, right? And she was pregnant. And, right. you know, right. what right. did Supposedly, they do with that uh, baby? What, you know? Exactly. So, anyway, if she even died, I mean, there's so much speculation. Again, all the, all the world's a stage, right? So, right. Who, who, knows, yeah. who knows what the real story is there? I, I can almost guarantee it's not what they're saying it is. Whatever the story is, it's not, it's not that. Right, but it, I mean, the Manson murders was a working. You know what I mean? It did put it. It, it did put out an energy that was uh, beneficial for the dark occult. You know what I mean? It put everyone in fear, and it gave everyone like um, sure. suddenly people stopped trusting their neighbors. Things. Between between that and then just a few years later, Ted Bundy, which also right. seems to me a, a, a crock of poppycock. Um, right. th both of those things suddenly people stopped uh, trusting their neighbors. They they stopped right. um, hitchhiking. They started locking their doors. Oh. Um, it was so, the tie-in yeah, for the uh, the destruction of Americana. Like the '60s was the end of it. '69, yep, right. you have what what Crow and I always talk about. You have 
Moon Landing, Ultima. Manson, and Woodstock and all that. By the way, uh, it's probably good to know that episode 52 on Crow 777 Radio, we did the JPL thing, and that also has direct ties with the OTO. Jack Parsons. Yeah, yeah. and that's right. all That's all and, in that same general vicinity with this, and, a lot of the same characters. And L. Ron Hubbard, sure. Yeah. And L. Ron right. Hubbard with the scienti- scientism, which again goes okay. back to Tom Cruise. So It goes back to Eyes Wide Shut because she's dreaming of a naval officer. And <laughs> who could that be? Yeah, exactly. She's trained to fall for naval officers. She's got it like that's her programming. And if you look who they are Scientologists, and if you learn further about Kubrick's relationship with his daughter, he wanted Vivian Kubrick to do the soundtrack of Eyes Wide Shut. But he was very sad to find that she ran away to California, America, and she joined Scientology. She became one of the cults. Interesting. His daughter was lost to the cult. And um, one of the things about Kubrick is that he spent nearly as much time and often more money on the soundtracks and special effects audio uh, for his films than he did on the visual and cinematography. For, for a guy known, wanted, as, known for his cinematography specifically, yeah. Right. And he wanted his family to be part of Eyes Wide Shut. His, his favorite, his most, you know, his magnum opus, you know, he, he wanted, he, Christian Kubrick did all the paintings. You know, he wanted his daughter Vivian Kubrick to do the, the, um, uh, all the music. Uh, he's got his, his best friend, basically, Leon Vitale, who actually played um, Lord Bullingdon in uh, Barry Lyndon. Uh, That guy played uh, Red Cloak. Um, You know, Kubrick's, like, uh, personal assistant for years, like, basically almost his whole career. This guy was, like, his best friend. Uh, was, Was the guy in the newspaper. You know, he's populated the movie with people that he loved whether he loves you know and it really broke his heart that his daughter vivian just ran off to scientology oh and And, you know it just comes to mind too that um one of his second uh kubrick's second short films was the seafarers in uh 53 i think yeah yeah and well there's more to the to the naval officer um because you have a direct link to to the you know the hubbard stuff but it's also a direct link to where the rainbow ends uh where the rainbow ends is a play from 1911 in england and it was kind of a statist play which was which was to rally the power of britain you know it was like to to uh make people more nationalistic you know the citizens and uh, it was a it was a story about four kids, but two main kids have a pet lion cub, which is called uh, its name. I mean, I forget its name, but it's fed with uh, colonial steel, <laughs> whatever that is. Uh, you know, basically all the power of Britain is feeding this lion who's just a cub, right? So it, it has that kind of nationalistic statist thing pushed into it but basically in this in this movie or in this play there's a book called where the rainbow ends 
and they find the book and they are the, the children are sad because they live with their evil uncle and aunt and their mom and dad were shipwrecked on a, on a boat and they, they they're now they're orphans and they're so sad that they have to live this terrible life with their with their family that they that doesn't really love them and so they remember this book that's in the library and they go in the library and they find it in there and where the rainbow ends is a place where all lost family members are found so that goes along with Helena being kidnapped at the end of the movie. Like when they ask Bill, don't you want to go where the rainbow ends? <laughs> like that's like, don't you want to find your lost loved ones? You know, and this, they actually go on this adventure. These children, they ride a magic carpet to the place where the rainbow ends. And then they re and they have, uh, they're helped by St. Christ, um, Saint Christopher or something that basically uh, when they get in danger they the the girl will weave or will knit a flag of Britain and she'll like raise it up a pole and then all of a sudden this like knight shows up and vanquishes their enemies it's really it's an odd tale the flag but, of Britain uh, that has the double crosses on it yeah, it's uh, got the cross. Uh, I think maybe maybe it's the Templar cross that she has to. I have to read it again. Like I read the story. Um, well, that'd be but a anyway, red cross. By the way, at the right. end, when you're talking about uh, the little girl getting kidnapped, she's surrounded by bears. Another MK Ultra symbol. Oh yeah, at the okay at the toy store. Right. So, so bears are a pedophilia reference, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also, if you at the very end, the very end of the toy store where, um, where the two older gentlemen are at the end of the aisle and Alice like walks up and she turns around and she's facing stuffed lion cubs. They're not actually bears at the point where Alice turns and he's like, what do you think we should do? And then they start talking there's lion cubs right there. And if you remember Domino, Domino was the the hooker that tries to pick up Bill while he's out walking the town. Mm -hmm. And in her apartment, she has masks on her walls and she has a stuffed lion cub on her bedspread. Like she so this this is like the entrance for Helena into that world of prostitution. And, like, Alice is sad because she's giving away her kid at, right at that moment. They both kind of, like, you know, they pat her on the shoulder and they kind of push her off. And she's like, okay, I'm walking this way. And she's looking back. And then she just gets enfolded by the nothing. And she, you know, and, mean, and so then Alice is, like, talk, taking Bill's attention, full attention, face to face, you know, distracting him with sex. We need to, you know, get it on. And then, so Bill is fully unaware. Uh, his eyes are wide shut. He's looking at her. And Helena 
walks off towards these gentlemen, and then if any, like any parent, every parent knows, you don't just let your kid like wander around in a store. Right. You know what I mean? Especially since she was like five or seven, maybe. And yeah, she was seven. young. Seven. Yes. She was supposed to be seven. You're supposed to, yeah, seven. And seven is uh, when they, uh, when the next phase of their rituals, um, like a, a person in the occult, like a person is, is grows in stages of seven, like at seven years old, then they start to have an ego of their own. And then like at 14, they start with the puberty. And then at like 21, they're like full adult. And then yeah, that's not just not just in uh, in uh, occult symbology. That's uh, also psychology. Uh, there's several right. thesis on that that there are seven year um, progressions of cycles. Yeah. Yeah. Right. By the way, if you want to so, hear yeah, another creepy thing, is like the perfection of beauty in like art with um, you know portraiture or whatever, and that's why all the stars get killed at 27. So like right before 28, you know what I mean. So like they're at their peak. So they don't fall down and, you know, like Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and like all the, all the ones that were murdered. <laughs> yeah. The club you know? 27 or, or mm-hmm. disappeared or what, whatever. I mean, all the yeah. way off the stage. So again, hard to tell. Yeah. yeah. Right. I wanted to finish up on the, uh, the pedo thing. Cause it seems like some folks in the chat were more familiar with it. There is an annual benefit in the UK called children in need. And if you haven't heard about the whole Jimmy Savile mess and, and all of the, uh, crazy, disgusting things that that piece of shit did, for his entire life look at their symbol it's a teddy bear with a patch over its eye right it's an injured bear an injured bear right yes it's been it's it's been you know destroyed (laughs) that guy was a sick teddy roosevelt and you know a teddy bear and like he was supposedly you know a hunter who would go out in the wild and you know, and then you know, that kind of makes me think of like the South Park with those guys, those pedophiles that go out into the wilderness and bugger little kids all over the world, you know. Um, so, like, it, it, I think that there's something to that with those, with that. Uh, but in any case, uh, Kubrick uses it in, in The Shining. Uh, Danny has an episode, and then he's like laying on a bear pillow, you know. So it's not only related to bears, but it's also related to sleep, and, you know, and well, anyway, uh, so yeah, the, the pedophilia reference, she's, you know, she wants this big bear and they're like, Oh, maybe we'll get you a bear, you know, <laughs> and then she walks over and then she gets, uh, and, and while she's holding the bear, Kubrick does this where there's this like tall black dude with a, with a fancy wristwatch. And he's carrying a bear, like right at the moment that Helena gets the bear, you know, grabs the bear and looks, and he's smiling, and he like walks full across, and while while he's doing that, uh, Alice is like holding the bear that Helena wants, and the way that it's framed, it looks like Helena's face is on the crotch of the bear, and it's like as if she's sexually gratifying the bear in the way that it shot, uh, you know, the, the composition. And then he's walking through right at that moment as if like, she's sexually satisfying him and he pleased, he's so pleased and he's got his wife and he's like walks through. And then, uh, later and, uh, they're walking and there's this, 
he looks like a thug from the mafia. Like he's like an Italian thug with like greasy hair and a trench coat. And he's following Bill and Alice as they're walking through the toy store. And um, directly above her head is, uh, is an octagon on red and which symbolizes the dark occult and mind control and the tesseract and all these things. And at that moment, he's like following her. And then above his head, it's connects these like kind of toys where you build stuff and it says connects like, so it's as if he's trying to understand where she is. And, um, and then, so behind them, as they're walking at this moment, there's this Italian thug looking guy and he like looks at a teddy bear and then he kind of keeps walking as if like, I mean, what is that dude doing there? He does not look like he's getting toys. You know what I mean? He's the, he's the thug that's going to do the, the strong arming for the old men that are there at the end of the aisle. And those old men know that Alice will bring Helena right there because they programmed Helena or they pro they programmed Alice to bring Helena there, you know, and Alice is fulfilling her programming, but she still cries a little bit and she's, you know, she's distracting Bill and he says forever. And she says forever is scary word for her. <laughs> and we, we know that because, because of the way that the ritual works. Uh, the ritual is a moonchild butterfly net ritual. It's a necromancy which influences spirits to be incarnated into the souls, I mean, into the bodies that are being conceived at that ritual at that moment. So uh, if you read Moonchild uh, by Crowley, um, they influence what soul gets uh, implanted in the conception. So that's what that's what they're doing, basically. All the victims that they have murdered or whatever during that past year or whatever allotted amount of time, uh, those call, those souls are being called down again because they own those souls because they are utter slaves to the cult. So that is why forever is scary for her because she is trapped forever. She, she will be reborn and she will be that again. And that's, and we see that that role of, um, uh, the, you know, you've got Helena and then you've got Lily Sobieski at the Milich's house, Milich's rainbow fashions. And she's already working as a prostitute being used to, uh, to blackmail people. You know, uh, Millich like traps them in that room. There's two big locks on the outside of the door mm-hmm. in the glass cage. It's like built to trap people in. So it's and then like the, all the security for just a costume shop. He's got <laughs> this cage, you know, like because the Rainbow Fashions is a child prostitution business. And when uh, and when Bill is getting his cloak. Millich knows all about, oh, yeah, a, a cloak with a mask. Black. Like he gets it. Huh? Black? Black. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> black, brown, black, brown, red. 
and he, you know, but black. he's black. Black yeah, cloak, black robes. He's what does black. that mean? Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Say a Saturn, right? And here we are, the secrets of Saturn. Like, uh, so that so he knows that where Bill's going, and also the little girl knows. If you have this, if you have the um, closed captions going during that scene, uh, when she whispers in his ear, she's saying that he needs an ermine, uh, ermine cloak. An ermine is like a is is, is like a um, is a fur that is only for the rich elite. Uh, it's like mink. Mink is another is like the same as ermine. And uh, why would he need an ermine coat? And why does she know that? You know what I mean? It's almost as if he's orchestrated into that whole situation. But that is, I mean, I can't prove that yet, I guess. I don't know. But uh, um, so anyway, that, uh, that scene is the next stage level of, you know, you got seven years and then Lily Sobieski's maybe twelve, maybe fourteen, something like that. And she's probably younger than she's probably twelve or something. But uh, she's already being used. And then when he goes back to, to to bring back his tux, the gentleman they leave happy, and he says, "Thank you, see you later." You know, because it was all a play. It was all like they're paying for that experience. It's really weird. Either that, or that you know they paid. For you know, to, to for mil, mil, it, they paid to get let out. Basically, that's what that whole cage is all about. And so, okay, thanks. We'll see you again. And then he offers his daughter to Bill. Yep. So like, so there. Okay, so there's that, and then there's there's that age woman, and he's connected with the cult. He knows all about the cult. Uh, he got his business from another member of the cult who Bill used to be a doctor of. You know, so it's like they don't just sell that business to anybody. You know, this that way Millich is involved, and it's all Eastern Europeans too. It's like Millich, Zandor, Zavas, mm-hmm. like Ziegler. Um, so anyway, uh, there's that stage of of the 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 cult slave, and then there's Mandy in the bathroom, who is the adult hooker who is wasted on drugs. They control her with drugs. Um, that's how they own her will, right? right? They also have, she's most likely uh, a victim just like Helena. So, uh, you know, there's the carrot and the stick. So they give her the drugs and then they also give her the, the murder, <laughs> you know, ultimately at the end. So, uh, so then there's Mandy and then there's the two... Like, basically, all the women, except for Ziegler's wife, like, all of them are uh, beta sex kitten mind control slaves. Uh, you know, you got the two women at the party, and they mention that, and we have to focus on her name. She, like, they make it really, they make us focus, and she spells out her first name, Nuala, but her last name is Windsor. <laughs> right? Like the house then, of. <laughs> exactly. And then in that same conversation, the other one is a model or whatever, and she's like, 
Yeah, and yes, I was at Rockefeller Plaza working, you know, and he, oh, you had something in your eye. Oh, yeah, that's, they recognize each other. So they mentioned the, the names Windsor and Rockefeller. Like, that's who they work for. That's who they are. Like, I mean, it's just like, it's a sub, it's like our subconscious picks that up, you know what I mean? And so, like, there's those women which are like the cream of the crop. Those are the ones that they have at the party. Those are the party favors, you know? Those are also probably some women wearing masks at the ritual. Uh, that's that age level. And then when they move beyond that, they pick their favorite ones, like Alice, and then they breed those women to bring down the souls of the, one, the last ones that they just got done using up. And they implant those souls into the next generation, and it lasts forever. That's why the ancestors of Ziggler were wearing the same mask and doing the same ritual all those years ago because it's continuous. Right. Now, there's something important uh, we should touch on that uh, we kind of glossed over, and uh, Crow, Crow unfortunately uh, left us for the evening, but uh, uh, I forgot his name. Zandor, the, the European Zand gentleman in the beginning, uh, yeah, is quoting... Ovid. So let's talk about that. Right. Uh, he he mentions Ovid, uh, and Ovid uh, is bas basically Ovid is famous for metamorphosis, which you guys had two hours of podcasts that I listened to about uh, the stories of metamorphosis and how influential this work is to history and to uh to shaping our history and, and our way of thinking right like it is these are the myths that shape our reality you know and um and incidentally hollywood is making the, the myths of today you know and kubrick is a genius myth maker you know so it, he leaves it open so that other meanings can be like a given not i mean I mean, the the things that I'm talking about are direct references, but uh, like uh, the way that I was saying in 2001, it's so uh, subjective that your mind in a can can put together uh, many different things from your own experience, and then you get a different message out of it than someone else might because it's so subjective and open. Um, but they. I mean, eyes wide shut is pretty literal, the way that they do things, even down to the way that the, you know, the direction that Red Cloak is walking in the ritual is Wittershins and it's, you know, grinding against the wheel of nature. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot to it. And, um, we should probably do, uh, do go through the ritual because we didn't even really touch on that much. Okay. Uh, yeah, what the ritual uh, actually is, and uh, Nick Nightingale being there playing the music to a tape of a Romanian Orthodox Catholic ceremony that's being played backwards. Yes, and the words that are being played backwards, I got them here. Um, By the way, Wayne, like, if you want to chime in about how important Ovid is, uh, you've got a lot to say on that, I'm sure. Oh, oh yeah, Ovid. 
Ovid is, uh, you know, basically one of the one of the playbooks that the elite use uh, for control purposes when it comes down to it. But uh, just touching on something more interesting, you guys were just going into this whole ritual aspect and how it was uh, doing the the uh, this the backwards speech and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's something that is commonly associated with satanic rituals, right. and in fact. Uh, it's it's said i've heard said places that in order to become an ordained satanic priest first you have to become an ordained catholic priest and that way you could do the 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 mass backwards right so that's that that's an important aspect of things and this ties over into the secret societies like the oto and those other ones as well uh this is a a very important uh sort of a sacrament for them uh to be able to do this because once again, this ties back to the concept of a total inversion of uh, what the natural order is and, and what uh, nature's way is and, and what God's laws are. So this, right. this uh, doing the, the ritual and, and doing this backwards thing, this is integral to uh, many of their rituals because this is actually what they're trying to achieve here uh, in this world is a total inversion of our reality right. where... where uh, where good will be called bad and bad will be called good. And the Bible even speaks about this. And, you know, it's it's just one of those aspects of, of reality that uh, people need to be aware of. And especially when you're watching uh, a work of art like this. And, and let's face it, this is like a modern-day work of art film. This is this is something that, that's utilized heavily. Uh, this is the medium in which they convey these ideas. So when they're putting it out there, especially somebody like Kubrick, uh, who had a lot of, uh, I would say, esoteric influences. And I actually read something today uh, doing some more research on the guy. When he was a child, he was obsessed with the Greek and Roman myths. So he was very aware of Ovid, among other things. So that kind of ties into a lot of this, too. So uh, right. when you see the classical training was there, because this was something he took interest in as a child himself, even though he didn't do well on school. It's something he read up on and was very familiar with. So he he put these archetypes into his films. So when you're looking at a piece of art like this, you have to remember this is something, especially with a guy like Kubrick, who was like obsessive with the details of things. He meant this to be to stand the test of time and convey ideas across generations. So here we are, you know, 21 years later talking about this film. And uh, it's it's one of those things. He, He put that in there. Because it is spot on, and it is an important thing to look at. So when you look at the whole uh, backwards thing with the ritual, it's important to keep that in mind. So uh, just yeah. go ahead if you want to keep breaking down the, the ritual part of it. Yeah, uh, Diosil is uh, with the sun and has a positive and righteous associations uh, because uh, the ancients revered the sun. So in the northern hemisphere, like a sundial will move clockwise so that's the positive way of nature and when you're doing rituals you always use clockwise you use right hand because you want to put in like basically if you're stirring a, a, a pot of um you know something that you're going to serve during your ritual if you if you stir it uh clockwise then you're stirring in the uh, the positive influence of the sun and nature, and when you work against that, Wittershins, it's a Scottish term which translates to opposite course against the way, 
um, it's a left-hand motion where you're always turning left. Like if you if you walk around your altar and you always keep the altar on the left side, then it'll bring you counterclockwise. And that's why it's called the left-hand path because you're keeping your altar on the left hand. And that's why it's because it's moving counterclockwise. The left-hand path refers to Wittershins and working against nature, black magic. Um, so basically, um, the, the ceremonial magician is, uh, is circumnambulating the, the magic circle, uh, in a, in a counterclockwise fashion. Um, and I'll just, basically the, uh, Drawing a circle for ritual is always made in a clockwise motion, using incense to clear or cleanse an area and to consecrate it for use. And uh, if stirring, I mean, by going negative, uh, it, it uh, brings chaos, turmoil, and it, it grinds against the wheel of creation, causes havoc and destruction generally negative things to happen but it also works against the flow of nature so it's against time and also the natural flow of a soul is to ascend up and away from this realm to start again to you know to but they're they're bringing the soul down and the specific soul uh so also, Wittershins is common, commonly used for necromancy. And necromancy is the conjuration of the spirits of the dead. And you, I mean, necromancy is directly related to Moonchild workings if you, uh, you know, because it's, it's the influencing non-corporeal spirits. And uh, reincarnation naturally weds these two traditions together. Um, uh, you know, so basically, necromancy can bring someone back from the dead, use the dead as a weapon. Uh, some, it's referred to as death magic, um, skeomancy. Uh, it's the manipulation of the dead. And uh, they say, I mean, I've, I've read that it uh, necromancy evolved from shamanism, which calls upon the spirits of ancestors. So it's like family lines that they're actually calling. And uh, classical necromancers address the dead with low droning, low drones comparable to the to the trance state mutterings of shamans, and that's what that sound of that the 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 uh, Romanian chant played backwards. That's it's a low drone, you know, and uh, got the words here. I just had it. Uh, basically, it's a positive thing that it's like, uh, okay, the quote said backwards in Romanian translates to, and God told to his apprentices, I gave you a command to pray to the Lord for the mercy, life, peace, health, salvation, the search, the leave, and the forgiveness of the sins 
of God's children. The ones that pray, they have mercy, and they take good care of this holy place. So if you work that Wittershins, it's the, the opposite of those, those words. In a low drone, to call the, uh, the souls from the dead. And uh, mm. I have more about Ovid too, but I mean, that was the ritual talk, I guess. Uh, do you have any questions about that? Or well, yeah, let's that? talk about the ritual. What would, if Bill hadn't stumbled in there, what was the ritual supposed to accomplish? Do we know? So um, the way that I the way that I take it is the women are to be impregnated, and then uh, those women go back to their lives. Uh, Alice had Bill, you know, and then they raise that child in those families to be stolen later at seven years old. So basically, it's a breeding system. Um, the, the women at the ritual are there to be impregnated. And uh, Helena, when Alice was there, Helena was the result. And Bill thinks it's his daughter. And he raises her up until the point where they can steal her away. And, you know, the impression I got the whole time was that Bill came into the thing, but he was never, ever going to be welcome as part of it. Well. Even, even by the end, yes, he's been allowed to know it, and they didn't have him have an accident, but he's not going to be welcomed in it. Cause even Ziggler at the end was kind of being cool about it, you know, but not, but not welcoming. Well, the way they dealt with it is the way that they all deal with us. You know, the regular people, like he saw with his own eyes that Mandy was killed. And just like, we saw with our own, like all day on 9-11, we saw those buildings come down and they turned to dust and blew away. Like we saw it happen. And then they just say, oh, it's okay. It was uh, kerosene melted the steel and uh, it just collapsed like that pancake and just fell free fall, you know, how things do. And then we are left to decide whether we are going to believe the lie and, you know, have the cognitive dissonance and continue on, or are we going to know that that is, that that was a total lie and, you know, think for ourselves and, you know, try to figure out the real thing. Um, so like he's, he's asking Zig, he's asking Ziegler in the billiard room about Mandy and he shows him the newspaper and says, have you seen this? And he's like, yeah, I've seen it. And then he's like, is that the woman from the ritual? Yeah, that's her. And he says, you know, then he's like, it's a gotcha moment. Bill thinks he's got him, right? And then uh, Sidney Pollack says, uh, you know, look, the police are happy. The doors were locked from the inside. Case closed. But if you stop and pause and look at the the newspaper clipping, the poli- it doesn't say anywhere 
said it was locked from the inside. He has knowledge that's <laughs> not given to anyone. So it's like that right there is proof that there was something that happened. And they, you know, they own the police. Of course, the police are happy, you know. And so anyway, uh, he revealed right there that he knew more than he should. But Bill didn't even pick that up. And so um, Ziegler offers Bill this lie. Eh, people die all the time, you know. And then he grabs him by the shoulders <laughs> and he's like, you know, life goes on until it doesn't. You know what I mean? Like that's a veiled threat. He's like power grabbing his shoulders and, you know. So it's uh, basically believe this lie or we're going to get you. And Bill's like, okay. And then he goes home and he confesses to his wife and, you know, they have like a cathartic moment and, you know, he feels bad about, uh, sorry. And she's like, oh, you suck. And then they're going to go to the, to the store. Right. And so this is, this is the moment. Like it's, it, Bill had the chance to know the truth. But Bill chooses to accept this lie, and then he's going to focus on sex instead of, like, you know, learning more or, like, figuring out that he's a pawn in, in this game, that he just, you know, he's just a, a warm family for them to raise their butterfly eggs, you know? It's, uh, like, he had his chance. He saw everything, but he's the jerk. So I guess they can let him live because he's too dumb to figure it out, you know? Well, he's useful, too. I mean, he's a doctor, so he can help them with, you know, just like what he did. He He's a servant. How about we put it that way? Right. Yeah, he's a house slave. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, so, I mean, maybe the guy, pers- maybe Ziegler personally likes him or whatever, but... You know, he's allowed to live basically because he doesn't get it. And then they distract him and take the daughter away because, like, he's starting to catch on. They got to get her now because he's, like, stumbling into the stuff. You know, he, they got to, they got to take that kid while they can. You know what I mean? And, uh, so Kubrick's daughter was stolen by Scientology. So Kubrick cast. Scientologists and Kubrick has her talk about the the naval officer. Oh yeah, and the kid in Where the Rainbow Ends. I forgot to say this earlier. The the male child uh, wants to grow up to be a naval officer. Like, that's <laughs> his dream goal. And that's that naval crazy. thing that could have a lot of implications as well. You know, a maritime admiralty law maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, in the you know, navy. and you know like the space is another kind of ocean and maybe the dimension beyond is like another type of ocean to try you know to travel like they could probably use the same words for those endeavors i don't know i do believe kennedy did oh yeah yeah he did. He used a lot of nautical language. Crow points that out all the time, and and that's one of the the we reasons. We set sail. That, uh, blah 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 yep. blah. <laughs> right. Yep. 
And that's yeah. that's just one reason to, you know, really not accept the, the narrative we're given, because uh, obviously uh, there's some people higher up in the power structure that know a couple more things about stuff than than we're allowed to know. So there, there's a reason that they speak in this uh, maritime language. They this use all that language. Yeah, they use all that naughty cold language. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> is there is there anything else in the Kubrick movies that uh, give hints to the uh, to the whole nautical slash maritime admiralty law thing? Did he put anything in there that you know of, Sean? Um, I can't recall. Um. No, I mean maybe in two thousand one, but I can't, I can't, I don't think so. I think I think that was reserved maybe for this movie only, because it was directed directly relating to uh, the loss of his daughter to Scientology. You know, it happened in ninety eight or whatever, and uh, he didn't feel the need to put that in his movie before. Just curious, because obviously he had the bear thing. Uh, We didn't even mention earlier, I saw a couple people saying in the chat room about uh, someone in a bear costume, even in The Shining, so... Oh, I think that was a a boar. It had tusks. And yeah, with the, the, the back flap open, with the, you know... Homosexual yeah. tryst and the, right. it's disgusting, but uh, but that relates to you know the the stuffed animal is another way of relating uh, the idea of pedophilia and and having the person dressed as a furry or whatever is like a living doll, and basically that's kind of like what uh, what the people in masks are living dolls. You know, they're in robe and mask and they're, they're made of clay or whatever, but they move around, you know? Right. Uh, and in the beginning, uh, Helena asks to stay up to watch the Nutcracker and Mm. the Nutcracker is a story where the daughter is, the little girl is whisked away to a magical land where all the dolls are alive and uh, pedophilia is related to it. Um, some of the some of the renditions of the story have the uncle giving the the little girl the uh, nutcracker, and he's mad that she loves a nutcracker more than him. <laughs> it's like because he's in love with her, he's you know, uh, and she's wearing butterfly wings, white butterfly wings. Right in the very moment we first see her, she's wearing butterfly wings. So that relates to the butterfly net. The monarch programming, yeah. Uh, how much so, do you know right, about that? Well, I, I know Wayne and Baldini both know a good bit about that, if you want to tie that in real quick. I know very much about that, and especially reading Fritz Springmeier and, uh, you know, and, like I've, and understanding ancient Babylon and, you know, the satanic ritual abuse, how it's come down through the ages. And how that's translated into MK Ultra uh, Monarch programming, and uh, you know I've studied all of that. I know all about that. Uh, like, also the ancient Babylon is uh, is in Lolita when at the in the children's play, Semiramis is removing the horn from a goat, and then they take him to the underworld, and that was the play written by Quilty, who is the guy that uh, 
steals Lolita from Humbert. <laughs> it's uh, there's a lot, man. There, I mean, so I'm I'm jumping around a lot. I'm sorry, but there is a lot of information to talk about. Um, yeah. Well, that Maybe. tells me what that tells me that uh, Kubrick knew a lot about this subject matter. So he, he must have probably been familiar with uh, mind control programming at some level or another, especially right. if he was so upset about his daughter uh, joining Scientology. Apparently, he knew yeah. what that was all about. Right. And yeah, well, I mean, he certainly, um, you know, in Clockwork Orange, there's, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a major portion of it. So uh, he seems to be uh, very familiar with the topic and, and leaking it in almost every film. Right. And uh, also Full Metal Jacket, like the way that they mind control the people and the 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 teenage boys and turn them into killers, you know, um, that's a form of mind control programming that I'm sure MK Ultra had a lot to do with, you know, how boot camp was created. Oh, know? I'm sure. Well, it, yeah, the modern it's, modern it's, military took direct. Yeah, they took direct um, instructions from the Jesuit order that most modern militaries have. Okay. Uh, that's, how, that's how they do it. Yeah. Uh, we got a I question, was... by the way, that I'd like to uh, get out here. I know we're getting low on time here. Guitar Guy Bear, thanks for the five bucks. And thank you uh, for uh, all of the super chats to everybody. Um, I didn't want to interrupt since we had so many people uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in our chat tonight, but uh, – Excuse me. His question is: Is it discussed about the end of two thousand one with the black monoliths are actually the black the black screens we are slaves today to predictive programming? Uh, hmm. In a way, yes. The um, the dimensions of the mon monolith are like oh, I forget now. It's it's something to do with the roots. Um, it's close. It's uh, most screens are sixteen by nine, like our our standard ones are sixteen by nine. Uh, movie screens, like as far as what you're watching, is either 2.39 or 2.35. So it's really, really close. But I think the the actual dimensions of the monolith are based out off of. Um, it's got to do with the even. Man, let me look it up real quick because I'm, I'm blanking on. I haven't looked at that in ages. Well, it is a black. <laughs> cube i mean it's not like a cube cube but it's a black six-sided stone well of yeah, course, the, propor yeah. the proportions were specific right and that's right. what i'm going to look up now now originally i had read and i don't know if this is true or not that kubrick had thought about making it some sort of prism or something like that oh yeah it was supposed to be crystal like i think that uh, was got changed. in the book was wasn't the book yeah, it, it, it was, was that way in the book yeah he changed it right and the now it's black because it's the opposite of the sun, you know. It's not reflecting light, it, or, or you know, uh, you know, working with light. It's absorbing light and reflecting none of it because yeah. it yeah. is evil. It is violence, domination. One uh, by four by nine. Energy. That was the dimensions. That was the, uh, the the its aspect ratio, if you want to call it that. So one by four by nine. One by four by nine, and again, it's it is really close to the sixteen by nine, or the uh, or even the movie screen. Right. It's it's in that ballpark, but is it exactly it? No. Yeah. So well, being... I mean, it's it's interesting. I think was it Widener who said that in uh, um, Room Two Thirty Seven? I've heard it said. That. Yeah. I think it was the same aspect ratio as uh, movie theater screens at the time that it was shown. Right. That makes sense because. 
uh, the first three minutes of that movie is just black, and you hear the buzzing bees, mm. and bees relates to like social cohesion, um, you know, and violence. Right, violence and domination is a way of social cohesion. I mean, it's a very negative one. But, yeah, it also yeah it uh, comes from um, Masonic stuff, and also uh, Mormonism uh, refers to it in their Masonic-based stuff as well. So the the B and beehive symbolism is um, included there as well. I've heard that Pharaoh means beekeeper, and that in ancient Egypt, all the boats on the Nile had beehives on them and they would bring the bees up and down the Nile so they get all the different flowers because hmm. that's like the only natural sweet that you I mean they industrialize beekeeping basically oh and, me. and <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and like uh, social cohesion the way that bees are uh, pharaohs love that because the queen bee is the top of the hierarchy all the other ones serve it's the same way. I mean, the pharaoh builds his society the same way. Um, so anyway, yeah, so the bees are humming, buzzing, and then we've got like three minutes of just black screen. But, I mean, if you think about it, we're looking at the monolith. Like, we're hearing that sound, the same sound that was happening when the, when the monkeys were looking at it. We are monkeys, you know, is what he was telling us. Um, but yeah, like that. Basically, um, I did a, a breakdown of that movie where I related the carnism to uh, to the film. Like the very the beginning piece is pretty literal. Like you know, it's it's the the Adam and Eve, you know, or like the you know the Garden of Eden, and you got the the man living with the animals peacefully. And, you know, there's a little couple scuffles, but there's no violence. You know, they just hoot and holler. And then, you know, they got the other monkeys. And, you know, they hoot and holler. And then the first monkeys move away from the water and hole, let the other ones have their turn. And there's like a natural way, you know. Uh, there's no violence there. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, they meet the monolith. They look up at the monolith and this uh, rectangle transforms through perspective into a trapezoid and that's basically a truncated pyramid it's a truncated black pyramid with the sun right there in line above it and then the moon is forming horns like the horns of baal and it's transmitting this information through this trapezoid into these monkeys minds and then later when the monkey is off in the and well and then uh Later, the monkey's off looking at the, you know, the pig carcass, and he's thinking. He's visibly seen thinking, and then it cuts to that scene of the monolith, or to the, to the shot of the monolith transmitting information. So, like, we see visibly that he's thinking about the monolith, and then he realizes that this is a carcass, and then he takes the bone, and then he smashes the head, and he's like, Wow! I can do this because he was given the spark of violence. And then the next scene, there's a dead pig and the teeth are squishing into the sound of the meat and there's flies buzzing. And he's just like, like blood everywhere. All of a sudden he's a monster and he's killed his fellows from the garden. And basically I'm, 
I'm thinking that Kubrick is telling us that flesh, eating flesh, is the forbidden fruit. That is the knowledge of mm. good and evil. Once you eat flesh, you know you've done wrong. It's, right. It was alive, now it's dead. It's not normal fruit. It's not normal food. So then, you know, that's, then he takes the bone and, you know, all the other monkeys in the next scene, they're all eating flesh. And then they all have bones. And then the little one is like chewing on the bone like they're teaching it to their young. And then they all have bones. They're all armed. They're an armed gang now. And then they go to the water hole. And then the other monkeys come unarmed, just like normal, hooting and hollering, just like normal. And then one monkey charges and they bash him dead in the head. And then all the other ones take turns bashing him violently. They all take turns. It's like, you know, it's like an initiation. They all have to be violent. And, that, and then they're like, yay, we win all of the resources of the Darwin myth, you know, like survival of the fittest. And then, that, then they take the bone and he throws it out of the garden. He casts the bone out of the garden. Cast out. And then the next scene, boom, spaceship in space. Humans out of the garden, not in the garden anymore. And then in the original on what was supposed what's on those ships that, that we cut to, there's supposed to be nuclear bombs on the ship. But I guess that was changed. But I mean you know what I mean? Violence to the most part to the to the utmost where we got nuclear bombs, you know, and we're cast out of the garden. And then so, you know, there's other what's go ahead, sorry. I was just gonna say there's so many esoteric ideas encoded in that and I could tell you what exactly this whole thing is an allegory of, uh, you know, from the mystery school philosophies. Uh, when you go back and just look at, at the obelisk, first of all, we could start there. Uh, first off, the obelisk, uh, Jason said the dimensions, one by four by nine. Right. That makes 36 cube. So three, six, 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 six. There you go. It's wow. your cube. Thank you. It's your cube, first of all. So there, there's there's your encoding right there for that. Uh, and then you also said they look up, it looks like the shape of a trapezoid. A trapezoid, I don't, I don't know if you guys are aware of this or Saturday. not. This is actually, well, not only that, it's also the uh, encoding of the tetragrammaton. Right. Uh, and, and this is encoded in the dimensions of uh, 10565. So it's a very specific... Uh, Really? Uh, type of a trapezoid and there, there's actually a, a whole esoteric order called the order of the trapezoid that's based upon a lot of these ideas uh this also is an encoding of the masonic apron this is exact the exact uh angles and stuff the masonic apron gets folded at this is a representation of the tetragrammaton so this is an encoding of the divine spark so that's that's what this is going on so this is the divine spark coming into man man being a physical primitive creature in this uh, encoding uh, is being introduced with the idea of duality at this point. So once he gets this message of duality, and this would be uh, eating the the, tr the, uh, the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, uh, he learns evil. And uh, when he oh. learns evil, he learns the Promethean fire. The basic the Promethean, Promethean fire. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yep. So this is this is he's given the gift of intellect and he's able to use this intellect to change his environment around him. Well, so, although it's the first result is inherently evil. He kills with it. Right. So. 
Right. By the way, that character's name, if I recall correctly from the novel, is Moonwatcher. That's an interesting. Nothing to see here. (laughs) But this this is the tale of the first priest king when it comes down to the mystery schools. The first one that used the bone to bash somebody's brains in. This is this is an allegory of the first priest king. So once this uh, human knew how to use this tool. He had power over the others because none of them knew about it. So yeah, this is this is actually this is Nimrod. Very good, yeah. uh, Baldini. Uh, so this this is what we're talking about. This is the tale. This is the allegorized tale uh, told in the form of a, a science fiction movie. Uh, so like what you're looking at here, it does it moves forward through the whole Garden of Eden aspect, and then you're talking the Cain and Abel story. All roll right. into one here, and this right. this is goes back to the the ancient mystery schools. This is uh, one of their uh, main teachings, uh, and this is all based upon uh, what later became known as Luciferian philosophy. So this is what Myst- this mystery is. Bab- Babylon religion. So it's all the yeah. same, right? And it, and it all ties together, and it all has to do with even these rituals, the moon child rituals and stuff you're talking about, because uh, you know this is something that uh, L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons worked on. Uh, in the desert near uh, where modern-day Area 51 is, by the way. And this was called the Babylon Working. Uh, right. And this is one of the things that they did. That's exactly so they're right. Calling, they were uh, trying so, to incarnate the Scarlet Woman. Yes, Precisely. and the soulless child who could then be the incarnate. Yes. Right. right. Oh, okay. So this okay. is, this is uh, you know, some stuff people should be aware of and look a little more into because, like, these are a lot of uh, big-name people uh, in in our history, in our world. And both of these guys, by the way, both uh, Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, uh, these were protégés of Aleister Crowley, who, uh, by the way, worked for British intelligence as well, MI6, MI5. Uh, So it's just, it's interesting how all these things tie together. And established uh, the OTO with Jack Parsons. That's where we we tie back to OTO. All these guys worked in intelligence as well, and that's another crossover. Yeah, Crowley gave the charter uh, for OTO in the uh, Southern California to Jack Parsons, who launched it up, and that was the first OTO in Southern California. And then uh, what, what's his uh, – the military intelligence um, – oh, God, I can picture his, um, his face now with the weird eyebrows. Um, Aquino. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Aquino, right? He was also military intelligence, OTO, and the 1st Earth Battalion. Yep. Yeah, from, started, from which uh, men who stare at goats. Temple of Set. And, uh, you know, yes, he broke Temple free of, of the Church of Satan to start the Temple of Set. Temple of Set, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the, and he's, his, his and first battalion. Yes, and he is. He's a pedophile who attacked the children at the military base. Yes, at the military base, at the, the daycare center there, yes. Right. And uh, his first Earth battalion is what the movie with uh, George Clooney, Men Who Stare at Goats, is basically. Yeah. Loosely, yeah. basically loosed on, right? Loosely based. By on. the way, they made a big joke out of that in that movie, but yes, they did. But the concepts are sound. Exactly. Right, and and there were there's actually serious scientific research to back that up uh, within these programs, and there's still a lot of classified aspects of those programs that still haven't been, uh, you know, let out. To yeah, they're the not going to give you. They're so not going to give you the gravy. They're not right? giving you the good stuff. No, right. so they're, they're, that, that's one thing to keep in mind. Uh, another they, thing they discredit their own. They discredit their own work. They throw millions of dollars and, and decades into it, and then say, "Nah, there wasn't anything that came out of it." Well, you know that's you know that's poppycock, right? And here's another thing about Michael Aquino. Now, this guy, uh, you know, was a, a big shaker in military intelligence and actually set policy 
that uh, our military has used ever since, and it's called Psy War. Look up this guy. He's the original. Yeah, he's the original PsyOps guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, this is something that's uh, very well documented, too. I mean, this isn't any woo-woo crazy. Yeah, there's no tinfoil hat. Everything we're talking about. This is all acknowledged, yeah. I think he's also the reason why the U.S. military acknowledges the Church of Satan as being a re- regular religion. You know, if you join the military, you can tell them you're a Satanist, and they'll put that on your dog tags. Yeah, he, like, was on, yeah he was on an early episode of um, Phil Donahue uh, in the late 1970s. Is this uh, the guy with the Spock eyebrows we're talking about? Yes, that's yeah, the guy. Yeah. Michael Aquino. Yep, that's yep. the guy. Yeah. That's the, Isn't there footage remember. of him walking around talking about a dagger he got from the Nazi... Um, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. Yeah, the tip of the spear he, he yeah. was talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it's the, the spear guy. of destiny. Yep. Oh, that they actually murdered Jesus on the cross. That that's supposedly spear? it. Yeah. That's yeah. It. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, so for those who aren't aware, what we're talking about for the, into the occult, then they were so after they were after all of those artifacts. Artifacts. So for yeah. those uh, for those listening who aren't uh, the, the, who aren't hip to this, uh, the tip of the spear you've probably heard that, or uh, the spear of destiny is apparently um, the 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 Roman spear who pierced the side of Jesus while he was hanging on the cross, and then um, blood and water came out. Uh, so it became somehow then imbued with. Um, all sorts of like magical juju uh, at that point, and whoever held uh, this as a dagger uh, would be invincible in battle and, and potentially immortal. That that was the the legend around it, and supposedly it the Nazis gra- <laughs> supposedly the, the Nazis grabbed it during World War Two. Damn German um, guys, we don't want to say right? that the bad words. Yeah, I want to keep my channel. Band- <laughs> <up with it>. <laughs> <laughs> Angry German, German people around 1940. <laughs> right. Exactly. So them forty uh, something German guys. The forty the late thirties, early forty something German guys, and then uh, Indiana Jones went and messed the whole thing up there. Don't what you know. are you talking yeah. about, Mr. President? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See? Yeah, and Doctor Strangelove again. <laughs> See, it always comes back to Kubrick. See? Yeah. It does. And they and they wanted to go underground and bring the women down there and like restart society. And Animals with very blood and slaughtered. Yeah, yeah. No, don't yeah. cry for me, Argentina. Right. <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, there's a lot of twins down in Argentina. <laughs> because they were mangalade. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so basically that's that system that, that has become such a, if you read Bryce Taylor, like, it's such a, it's like they create a, uh, perfect little slaves that can do everything that have superpowers almost and they sell them to the you know to the highest bidder and then it like Bryce Taylor was owned by Kissinger and Bob Hope like combined they they like went halvesies on her um you know they it's uh it's a science that has been perfected over aeons you know, and when it came around to the CIA, they just gave it a name, MK Ultra or whatever. But it's always been there, you know. And that's what the ancient dark occult it were uh, psychologists, you know. They, they were studying the mind and what they can do. And, if you know, as they're torturing these kids, they, they learn that they can turn them into, you know, super soldiers or sex kittens or whatever they want you know what i'm saying 
yeah, mind control and the, the ability to to foist one's will over others has been um, since time immemorial that that I can tell. Yeah, the only goal they have. Yeah, and now they're using high technology to do the same thing uh, on a ma- I mean, on a massive scale. On a massive scale, and uh, if you want to look at something uh, relating, uh, you know, to the, uh, the our, our good friend the five G frequencies. <laughs> uh, you could look at it, something called Project Pandora. If anybody wants to open that box, and that's wow. not the you app you listen to music with. We're talking about something. Yeah, no, no, no. Project <laughs> Pandora. Uh, look Hope into that. And change. Yeah. And, uh, there's a, a sub project under Project Pandora called Project Bizarre that uh, relates to actually controlling people's behaviors and stuff through the use of uh, sound frequencies and microwave frequencies. So I heard that was really you know, weird. Y- you think? How bizarre. How bizarre. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, gentlemen, we should probably start winding this down. Uh, one thing I would like to touch on, if you happen to have any knowledge of it, Sean, is how about the movie AI? Oh, I got some knowledge of that. All right. Let's, let's, let's end her with this. Okay. Um, well, uh, it was... Kubrick was doing at the same time he was making AI, he was making Eyes Wide Shut. And I believe that he wanted to put his entire energy into Eyes Wide Shut. And uh, AI, he he wanted, he always wanted to make a film that was like Spielberg type film, right? He even said that to Spielberg. He says, I always wanted to make a film like yours, you know, like, you know, fancy lighting and lots of noise and, you know, um, a blockbuster type movie. Because he was, he was never really, like, his movies are genius and they're perfect art in some ways, but it, it was, the, it's never really recognized at the box office. Like, people have to see his movies a few times, you know, they, it's, uh, once video came around, then he started putting a lot more into, like, uh, the Shining has a lot more stuff, like just in the frame. That he in Room Two Thirty Seven, the documentary is a testament to that. They got like five people talking about all the things that they saw within the frame of this movie. So Kubrick knew that with video, he would get a lot of rewatches. So, but uh, anyway, um, he wanted to make. He was friends with Spielberg. He said he always wanted to make a Spielberg-type movie, you know. He had it all storyboarded. He had all the architecture planned out. You know, he had the whole the whole scheme. And, um, and then he decided, we don't know why, I, I don't know why, but he gave the movie to Spielberg. Like, he was adamant, you have to do this movie. And uh, so Spielberg, like, honoring Kubrick was like, yeah, okay. And um, so uh, the, basically the movie is about uh, a, a child robot. And if you really think about it, who would buy a child robot who would want such a thing a child that never ages i mean right as painful it is as a parent to watch your child grow up 
They are. Dalt Wisney. Of course. What's that? And Dalt Wisney. <laughs> oh, yeah. That dude. Well, I mean, wacky Dalt Wisney Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if you think about it, like, who. So, who would want a child that never grows old? Right. And then, what is a robot? Jimmy Savile. It's a total slave. Complete, utter slave. Has no will of its own. So, who would want a child that never gets old and is a total slave and has no will of its own? Like, what market? And in the movie, it's you're supposed to believe, oh, yeah, it's for people that lost a child and they want to have an artificial one to replace it. I mean, whatever parents are doing that are already crazy. And right. there's not a very large market for that. Like, in the real world, if you think about it... You adopt. That's what you right. do. Right. You get real people because, you know, a robot is not a person. Right. So... If you look at our modern day, uh, they've got robots. Amazon is selling them. <laughs> well, I mean, they don't move. I guess they're not moving yet. But in the future, in this movie AI, there's going to be a robot child that looks so human. It's almost identical. And uh, so then, you know, like this family adopts him and... Uh, and then their, their, their real child who was in a coma wakes up and then they're giving more attention to the real boy. And then they kind of, there's an incident where, um, the robot is kind of violent by accident. And so after they programmed it to love them and be stuck to them, they just try to let it run away in the woods. Like you would, a, like a five-year-old would do to a dog or something. And so now he's lost on this adventure, and he's got his little teddy bear, which is obviously a pedophilia reference again, even though this was a Spielberg movie. It was really a Kubrick movie to start with. Um, and so he's got his little teddy bear, which is, uh, which is smarter than him. Like, it knows the way of the world, and it's showing him around. You know what I mean? And uh, he goes... Out and he finds another robot that gets to be his best friend who's a sex robot. And then you look around, the, the entire population is populated with sex robots everywhere. And he's like the only rare, and the other robots are, you know, will do your ironing and like, you know, servant like that. But the ones that are walking around the streets, the ones that really look human and, you know, have real like artificial personality. Are the are the sex slaves, and that's the future, and uh, so he discovers this world, and um, there, you know, he gets captured, and there's this fair that, you know, they call it a flesh fair or whatever, and they like killing robots is fun. It's just like the Colosseum type thing where everybody wants to see violence, but it's done to a robot. You know, it's like TV. Killing zombies, and uh, they find this child who looks like a real boy, and they're like, "Oh, it's real!" And they all of a sudden have emotion for it, and they're like, "Let it go! Ugh, don't kill it, because it looks human," you know. And the kid's set free, and he wants to find his mother again because he's programmed, 
and he follows this uh, fairy tale of Pinocchio, where he wants to become a real boy and find the blue fairy, and um, basically that was also programmed into him. And then he meets his maker, and then he realizes that life is crap, and then he kills himself. <laughs> and uh, I don't, I don't know if this, if I think that's probably how it should have ended. Um, I don't know for sure. I guess the original script had the last thirty minutes or whatever, but the crazy space aliens like, part. Yeah, and it wasn't space aliens, it was AI. It was just like, you know, they look kind of alien-ish because they got long fingers, but they're robots too, you know what I mean? They look like aliens, but they're robots that have evolved because, like, we birthed AI into existence and then catastrophe, you know, uh, ice age, whatever, humans gone, and robots are what's the legacy of humanity that's left on the Earth. The technocracy? Yeah, yes, all the way technocracy, where there's no will at all, no humans. <laughs> there, you know, the will of of mankind is destroyed, and all that's left is their toys walking around, acting like they're alive. So um, somehow, without will, they have science and they have society, and these robots have become like humans. You know, it's almost an animal farm type situation. And uh, and they discover the boy, uh, like, in ice, like some glacier. And, you know, they turn him on again because he's AI. He still works, whatever. He was just waiting thousands of years down there at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Um, and uh, so then he's awoken. And with genetic technology, because he has a lock of his mother's hair, they're, they're able to make a clone of his mother, and he's allowed to have one day with her. Which I don't know why it's only one day. Yeah, I never got that either. Sounds like some kind of fairy tale. Is, type was there an esoteric meaning behind that? Anybody know? Uh, this is the story of Pygmalion told again in a, just right. a different way. Uh, this goes back once again to Ovid and to the ancient yeah, Greek big surprise myth. There, so, huh? <laughs> right. yeah, not only that. I mean, it, you, you could just kind of see you know, where this is leading and stuff and what kind of transhumanist plan is all in right. place with this stuff. And it, it seems as though, like, the base urges are what is fueling the transhumanist plan. Like, if, if people didn't want sex robots, maybe there wouldn't be robots in the future to, like, dig him out of the ice. <laughs> you know? Like, because of people's perversions and people's evil that they wanted to inflict on something without a soul. That's why they are created. Because people are so evil, they've, you know, they want to abuse a robot instead of a real child. I mean, I guess, I guess that's kind of noble. Uh, a little, not even, like a little bit. It's, at least they're not abusing a real child. But now, you know, this thing AI is supposedly has consciousness, which I don't believe is possible. In uh, you know, I don't think a homunculus is is possible. You know what or, I mean? Or like, or like a bot. And for the record, Fox Bear, I'm I'm not a bot. Just <laughs> <laughs> thanks for telling us. At least you're not a Russian bot. That's at least that. 
<laughs> Not any kind of bot. Thanks. They are on to you, but, but comrade. That was, for, that was for the chat. That's for Fox Bear in chat. I, I am not a bot. Baldini, if you're Thank a you. bot, you're quite an eloquent one because I've had quite I'm a few a good, conversations I, well, with you. I passed the Turing test really well. Thank you. He's got a shiny top, too. So, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Mercy. Anyway, guys. If will survive the eons, Maybe. You, will be, you will be replicated into many bots in the future. Anyway, guys, if I could go ahead and read a quote here from the uh, late, great Jim Keith, just to kind of put a little perspective on this, I'll quote him. Quote, here stands the new man, his mind and body stolen from him, soul reduced to the impulses of the animal he thinks he is. His conception of reality is a dance of electronic images fired into his forebrain, a gossamer construction of his masters, designed so that he will not, under any circumstances, perceive the actual. His happiness is delivered to him through a tube or an electronic connection. His god lurks behind the, an electronic curtain. When the curtain is pulled away, we find the CIA sorcerer, the media manipulator, the cyberneticist, the weaver of the dreamscape, end quote. And that's from the late, great Jim Keith, uh, 1999, he wrote that. That's pretty good. That reminds me of uh, Jerry Garcia talking about computer technology you know, before he died, he was hip to that, and he was talking about, you know, what's going to be next, and Timothy Leary also, and, uh, you know, um, he was saying that uh, nobody's going to need to learn to play guitar because everybody's going to be Jimi Hendrix in, you know, the electronic land, Ready Player One type land, mm. you know, and he was so excited about it, you know, and basically that's what the dead were doing. I mean, they were, you know, the Pied Pipers putting wool over everybody's eyes. And, you know, and they were working for the CIA and all that. So uh, that's yeah. why I remind them. That one's the really obvious one. You don't even need to look very far to find that one out. Yeah. Acid test. But there are Just look up acid test. All right, gentlemen. So how do we want to wrap this up? Sean, is there uh, any last points you want to make about Kubrick before we say goodnight? Um. Well, I guess, uh, well, uh, I think everybody should watch his work again and again. I think it should be, uh, I think it's the myth that we, yes, <laughs> and it's the myth that we should all, like, hear again and again so that it can influence our lives in many ways. Like, I, when I, I've seen it, I've seen all his movies uh, hundreds of times, and now as I'm growing older and I'm on these different stages of life, and I know these other things, I am seeing those elements also have always been there. And like, I am growing into it, you know? And uh, there's more, there's always more to it. And if you, uh, if you pay attention, you will be amazed at the artwork. Uh, and I think that everybody should take that. And, and they, sh they should see as much Kubrick as they can. <laughs> I'm with you, man. Sean, I, I don't think a lot of folks know who you are, so go ahead and take a moment and uh, tell people where they can find any of your work and what you do and all that good stuff. Uh, I, I don't have a website. Um, I'm currently, I just had a baby and I'm looking for a new house and I don't have, I'm, I need to get it together here, but uh, <laughs> I don't have a website going yet, but I, that will be in the future. Uh, I've been on a few podcasts uh, uh spoken i've been I've been in the scene for a while i know a lot of people i know rose personally um 
So uh, uh, you can find my T-shirts. Actually, I have. Uh, I'm, I'm an artist as well. I'm a photographer, uh, graphic artist, and uh, I. Um, for a while there, I was living on the road and paying my way with T-shirts, the design that I've created, and um, I have some. Uh, I have made a website for that to. Uh, to sell my shirts, I guess I could give you that. Rose posted it in the chat. Oh, very good. Yeah, it's been posted Glad. a couple of times, and I'll put a link for you also when I uh, finish the when the video finishes processing. Very good. I was also I'm also uh, scheduled to speak at Seed for Growth, which is a conference in Ohio, and it was scheduled in May. Uh, uh, Brandon Martin, the gentleman that's putting on the the uh, conference had to has to rent a hall at, at a at, in Athens at a college like an auditorium, and I'm not sure. I think he's having trouble with that because of COVID and all that that's happening right now. I think that so it's postponed. Uh, we don't know the dates yet of when it's going to be happening, but I should still be talking, giving a presentation on Eyes Wide Shut and Lolita and. Basically, the general ideas that I've put forth here, um, there's a lot more to it. I mean, we didn't even really talk about how Nick Nightingale is related to Ovid. Uh, I talked about that before the show, but we didn't get to that here. I know. Well, we uh, could always do this again. There's probably a ton of stuff we didn't get to. We can oh, yeah. figure out what, we'd, uh, what we missed and go back and have another chat. This is why I like doing the uh, the live broadcasts like this, because we can just kind of have it as more of a friendly conversation than an organized uh the, the shows I do, I like to kind of do them as almost like college courses. You can listen to them. They're very well produced and tight and all that. These I like to just be an open, relaxed chat amongst people who actually have brains that work. Oh, I appreciate being invited. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> brains that work? Why do you invite me? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Were we supposed to have brains that worked? Yeah, no, no. mine, mine was discovered to be non-essential. It's on furlough right now. during <laughs> Non-essential personnel. Baldini, <laughs> I think you can actually be found in places now, correct? Uh, yeah, I'll spam it in the chat. Um, the unintended, unintended, unintended consequences. Um, so I've started doing um, live uh, streams Saturday mornings, 9 a.m. Uh, Pacific, noon uh, Eastern time. Uh, just come and join me and hang out. So um, it all kind of started with uh, the Awakening Project that uh, we first started here at Secrets of Saturn on uh, January 1st. Uh, I'm trying to discover why certain people wake up and others don't and uh, if there's a way to undo that. And uh, we started a, a research project and I'm well into it at this point, uh, several months in and um, got some excellent data so far, some proof of concept stuff. And then um, I've started kind of turning that around and uh, kind of releasing this in a podcast form and um, discovering um, we all have a lot in common uh there there are some things that set those of us who who awaken apart from uh those who don't uh there are some uh corollary things and not everybody's identical of course but there are some uh statistical uh relevant statistically relevant things that that stand out and uh we we're looking for and trying to develop a way to help others wake up those around you uh maybe develop kind of what we would call a deprogramming script and just um opportunities for that and one of the things that people have uh in common is uh time to to take a look at it and really think about it and and we're getting a little bit of that opportunity now with everybody stuck at home so this is a prime opportunity to help uh, wake those around you up so um, come hang out on saturday morning love to have you there uh sub to the channel and uh we'll see you on saturday morning wayne 
I think most people know who you are, but go for it anyway. Uh, yeah, I think everybody knows where to find me at this point. Uh, AlchemicalTechRevolution at gmail.com, Files from the Conspiratorium on Facebook, or right here on Secrets of Saturn every Wednesday night with Jason. Or if you can't get in touch with me directly for some reason or can't remember where to find me, just reach out to either Jason at Secrets of Saturn at gmail.com or reach out to Crow777 at gmail.com and uh, they'll put a message through to me. Absolutely. So, uh, I have books available on Amazon if anybody wants to look them up. Uh, working on my new book right now. Should be out sometime this summer. Uh, that one's going to be, uh, you know, pretty eye-opening for a lot of people. So uh, from there, that's that's about all I got. And my name is Jason oh. Lindgren. Thank you so much to everybody for all of the Super Chats. Thank you for being here. We had well over 400, I think close to 500 folks here today. So that's definitely cool. Hello to DLive. I know we had quite a few people on there. And then I understood that uh, Owen Benjamin went live and we lost most of them. But thank you for the ones that <laughs> stuck in there. I hope the gravy was good tonight for all you wonderful bears out there. And uh, tomorrow, of course, is the new episode of Crow Triple Seven Radio. It will be with Dr. Bar Lando. Uh, we're going to be dis- bleh, discussing a lot of the work of Walter Russell. If you haven't heard of him, uh, you're going to want to pay attention to that one. That's some really good stuff. Crow was absolutely over the moon, as it were, uh, speaking to Dr. Lando. So I think I think you'll enjoy that chat. As always, we will be here every week. And on Sunday, uh, Crow and I do a live stream as well. Uh, has now taken the place of the TFR show we used to do. So there you go. Again, thank you, everyone, for how awesome you are, and have a great night, everyone.